Hello, and we are so excited that you have joined us today. I'm your moderator, Faith Rogers with DKB Med. As we start 2022, we have now entered a new phase of the pandemic with Omicron causing more COVID-19 cases than we've ever seen. Uh, fortunately, you are in for a great presentation today with excellent faculty who will do their best to make sense of it all. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, uh, we do welcome you. And if you've participated in some of our over 150 webcasts on this important topic, we certainly welcome you back. Uh, we've been developing COVID education since March of 2020, so two years later, we're incredibly grateful for the progress we've all made in managing our patients during this pandemic. Okay, so here are those great faculty I mentioned earlier. For those of you who have been with us since last year, you will recognize them, but for our new learners, um, please meet Dr. Vega and Dr. Safo. Um, thank you both of you for taking time out of your busy practices to be here today. Our pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you, and these are our faculty's disclosures. So this educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the planning committee members and our faculty presenters. Uh, please note that this, if you're watching this on demand, it is current as of March 1st of 2022. So uh, do encourage you to look at the NIH and IDSA guidelines uh, for the most contemporary in guidance there. Uh, the learning objective for today's program is to assess the impact of COVID-19 on vulnerable populations, including those from racial and ethnic minorities and those with comorbidities. I'm going to hand this off to Dr. Safo. Um, so Dr. Safo, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, and I'll just give folks a minute to answer and then we'll get started. So it is a pleasure to be here with you guys, with Dr. Vega today, and we're hoping to have some rich discussion and definitely engage even on this virtual platform with some of your um, questions that you may have. So we wanna begin by talking about where we are in terms of the current status of SARS-CoV-2, which we are now in year three of this pandemic um, and the level of exhaustion that all of us feel just has to be acknowledged. Um, it has been a very, very long, long road. And in terms of how the disease has progressed, Starting in February 2020, we saw a slight rise in cases. We hit a surge from about October to February 2021, and that was really ascribed um, to uh, variants around like alpha and beta at that time. Um, and then we had over the summer of 2021, the Delta surge. And then of course, what you're seeing towards the end going towards December to February 2022 was the, you know, unbelievable rise of Omicron in terms of cases that we saw. We were seeing tens of thousands of cases in each state every day and hundreds of thousands of cases around the country. And we take a look at cases, which is what you're seeing in the, in the red and pink diagram, but we also take a look at tests, hospitalizations, and deaths. And so the numbers of tests um, that we were doing around this time did, did respond to the rise that we were seeing in, in cases. Um, although sometimes those lagged. The number of hospitalizations also lagged slightly and, and they have, they're, they're kind of more peaks along the way. And that is because um, at some point vaccines were entered into there. And so the kind of rolling back of the severity of COVID from vaccines did happen and kind of obscures the usual um, patterns that we see where we have a rise in cases and then a few weeks later we have a rise in hospitalizations. And the number of deaths um, also corresponds pretty nicely to the overlap of the rising cases. And when we talk about SARS-CoV-2, one of the most important things to kind of really understand is, is the disease progression. And, and what we're showing you here is pre-Omicron, but you know it is a, a family of diseases that kind of maps pretty closely. And, and we wanna share this with you because it relates to a lot of the therapeutics that we'll be talking about using. And so pre-Omicron, you got about four days of uh, incubation period before you presented with symptoms. And when you presented with symptoms, the kind of height of your symptoms is really when you were infectious. And you would be infectious for anywhere from about six to 10 days in total. And towards the end of that 10 day period, we considered you not infectious, you can come out of isolation and, and most people are okay at that point. For folks who were going to have a more severe course of SARS-CoV-2, what would happen with them is that around day six to seven, they would kind of, you know, they would have that, um, you know, cytokine storm and they would have a much more complex 
uh, presentation that would end them in the hospital. And so those are the folks that you saw who presented hypoxia, presented over to ARDS, and then either made it or didn't. Um, all of this is a little bit different for those who are immune compromised. For those who are immune compromised, you can see in the dashed arrow towards the top that their course of disease actually stays persistent from anywhere um, from two to four weeks longer than the average person. And it's in those individuals that we think we tend to see uh, the kind of you know uh, fodder or like the, the breeding ground for mutations in the SARS-CoV-2 virus because it is present in their body for so long. It's also those individuals that we have to be very mindful of as we do things like roll back um, mask mandates and vaccine requirements um, because those individuals remain very, very sensitive to poor outcomes from getting COVID. And so you see that um, this is kind of what we had pre-Omicron. Omicron has changed just slightly. The incubation period is about two days with Omicron. Folks are sick from anywhere from five to eight days. Um, although the kind of, you know, um, a common thing that has been said is that Omicron only gets you for five days. You don't have to test to see if you're infectious. You're just done after five days. Hasn't really panned out. We have seen folks who, had, who have had Omicron who are still infectious up to 10 days afterwards. Um, but on in total, the symptoms seem to be less severe with Omicron, and they, the whole course of disease seems to be a bit tighter. Um, and this is in part not just because of Omicron's properties, but in large part because a good portion of the population has been vaccinated, and so their immune response is really able to manage this disease. And you'll see at the bottom of this graphic that we talk about the presentation or the delivery of antivirals, uh, monoclonal antibodies, and other immune modulators at different times in the disease course. And so that's part of what your pretest questions got to, and that's what Dr. Fagan and I will be kind of teaching and talking about today. And so in terms of the clinical course and some epidemiology around this, for most people who get COVID-19, who get SARS-CoV-2, um, they are going to experience mild to moderate symptoms. And, and that is held pretty true, about 80% of the population. Um, again, with Omicron, it's, it's a little bit higher in some ways because uh, vaccination plays into this. But just as blanket statements, about 80%, eight out of 10 individuals will have mild symptoms or mild pneumonia that can be managed outpatient. Some folks will progress to more severe symptoms where they have dyspnea, they have hypoxia. Um, you can see damage in the lungs on CAT scan. And then there are those about 5% who progress to respiratory failure, um, sepsis, and um, multi-organ dysfunction. Those are the ones in the ICU. And it's that population that we're really trying to identify and target before they proceed uh, to that point. Hospitalization rates um, in the vaccination era before Omicron were that about 2% uh, of individuals who were vaccinated who got breakthrough COVID, about 2% of them ended up in the hospital. If you were unvaccinated, about 10% um, would end up in the hospital. However, if you were unvaccinated and you were greater than 60, about 18% would end up in the hospital. So what this tells you is we know vaccines work and we know vaccines are particularly important if you're in a high-risk group. Um, and Dr. Vega will speak to some of those high-risk groups um, you know, by epidemiology um, in a moment. And so um, kind of a final you know, thing we want to kind of really establish as we get started in this conversation is what we understand about those individuals who are likely to have severe illness. And this understanding comes from different data, and these data you know, have used anything from um, systematic reviews to cohort studies um, and various types of evidence. But we know in the left-hand column that if you have any of these conditions, you are, you are set up to have a more severe illness course if you get um, SARS-CoV-2. And these include cancer, cerebrovascular disease, CKD. I know that I see a ton of CKD in my practice, and so that's one that I'm always looking for. COPD, uh, cardiovascular disease, particularly heart failure. Um, and then if you have some of these risk factors that you know over 60% of the population does, like obesity, with the BMI over 30, um, if you're a smoker, those who are pregnant and have more compromised immune systems, and then those with type 1 or type 2 diabetes. We also know that certain other conditions may also set you up. I'm an HIV primary care doctor, so I you know, have kind of been primed for my HIV patients to experience a worse disease, disease course. And it's been a bit of a mixed picture, but there is some understanding, especially with those more compromised immune systems, that they will have a worse disease course with SARS-CoV-2. Um, individuals who have substance use disorder is also on this list just because of the management that um, comes with them managing their disease. And then those who are immune compromised because they're on steroid use or they've had a, a, a transplant where they're being treated for solid organ or blood, blood stem cell cancers. 
um, and then a couple of other folks that we've kind of thrown into there where the evidence is mixed, specifically those with asthma and hypertension. So I think the point here is that many individuals that we will encounter are at risk for severe COVID. And so the, the, the onus of um, the focus of, on treatment has been, one, can we prevent individuals from being sick, which is through vaccinations? Two, if they do get, um, get SARS-CoV-2, what can we do to decrease their likeliness of progressing to severe disease? And we'll talk to you about those. And then three, once they are sick, what can we do to really take care of them and take care of them well in the hospital? And with that, I'll turn it over to my colleague, Dr. Vega. Safa, that, that's a great review of epidemiology. Um, I really appreciate that perspective. Uh, you know, when I work in a community health center in one of the largest per capita Spanish-speaking states in the country, and I remember during the Delta surge, our, we were a major testing center for the county, and uh, our positivity rate on samples was, I think, 34% at sites, and we were like, whoa, this is, this is a lot. It's a lot of cases, and we were inundated, and that positivity rate's crazy, and then Omicron happened, and we hit 65%. Um, and so many of those individuals, it was their second time with COVID, they were partially vaccinated, there was a lot of different stories. Some were fully vaccinated and still had positive. But I do see that shift you're talking about away from the hospital. I was reflecting with some of my emergency medicine colleagues how, you know, back in 2020, we were at the outside of the uh, pandemic, we were admitting pretty much everybody with COVID because we were so, it was so scary and we weren't sure what to do and the therapeutics were all experimental at that time. And now you, you did a great job of talking about you know, prevention of illness, um, management of illness once you get it, and, and prevention of hospitalization. And, and I think there is a lot to be said. That said, like your practice, mine has, uh, and I bet like a lot of our audience too, the majority of patients I see, the majority of adults I see, and some of the children and adolescents I see too, are at higher risk for complications of uh, COVID-19. And th that list you enumerated was outstanding. It's, it's pretty comprehensive, right? There's, there's a lot of different conditions. Um, but it does leave out one really important factor, and that's uh, a, the most one a critical demographic uh, variable, and that is race and ethnicity. And so, health inequities, race and ethnicity, in of themselves, uh, put people at higher risk for COVID nineteen infection and COVID nineteen complications. And I like this quote from Dr. Kangovi because uh, it, for those of us who have been working in the space, Dr. Sappho, I know you have for a long time, and um, I have as well and many of your audience, uh, this quote should bring true that this is not new. Um, it's just more intense. We've seen these same types of outcomes with pain management, with diabetes, with heart failure, with cancer uh, treatment. You know, when it comes to racial and ethnic disparities, poor people are marginalized and don't necessarily get the same care that other populations get. But COVID-19 being so intense, and with a lot of public scrutiny, really presents as a fun house mirror. It creates this outsized image of these disparities, which we really feel and can palpate on a daily basis. It really affects our communities and our patients. And so this is data from the CDC just to describe um, what I just said in terms of incidence of COVID-19, in terms of rates of complications of COVID-19 requiring hospitalization or mortality. You can see um, that while Asian non-Hispanic persons compared to whites are at lower risk for infection in the first place, uh, lower risk for complications. Um, it's these other groups, American Indians, Alaska Natives, uh, Black or African American, Hispanic or Latino. Uh, you see higher rates certainly of complications. And for the American Indian, Alaska Native population and Hispanic Latino, higher incidence of uh, COVID-19 in the first place. So in of itself, race and ethnicity is a risk factor for COVID-19 and its complications. And these complications have devastating consequences. I'm sure that uh, many of you uh, know personally uh, individuals who have died due to COVID-19. And as we move towards a million deaths, a, a grim landmark of a million deaths of, uh, uh, due to COVID-19 in the United States, those deaths did not come proportionally uh, to different racial and ethnic groups. You can see that uh, the uh, being Native American, Alaska Native, Hispanic, or Black associated with a much higher risk of mortality and it's also worth noting where the, the greatest disparity in that mortality risk is, is actually among younger adults. We, we know that older adults are much uh, higher likelihood to die from COVID-19. But in terms of the disparity of where more people of color are dying of uh, COVID-19 versus white people, that's actually more in younger age groups. So this is uh, young adults and middle-aged adults. 
many of whom uh, have diabetes, hypertension, those obesity, all those chronic illnesses uh, that, were, that were mentioned earlier by Dr. Sappo. And then I have seen a, a, a few cases, unfortunately, where a caregiver was lost, and uh, this has grossly disproportionately affected communities of color as well. And so it's a real uh, tragic situation. It's a difficult social situation during an ongoing crisis when there's been so much strain on our social services in the first place. So we know that uh, age is a significant risk factor, and I'll call out those chronic conditions because I never see somebody with just an isolated uh, diabetes. They do have chronic kidney disease. They do have obesity. And generally, those factors are additive. So having one chronic condition, it puts you at higher risk for complications of COVID-19. But generally speaking, four chronic conditions or six or eight um, really increases your risk that much further, and it's all exacerbated by age. And it's all exacerbated by the fact of what is your access to care? Do you have a place where you can go and get tested promptly? Because if you think back to that normal course of illness, when we want to introduce our agents to alter that course for people who inevitably do become sick, uh, they need to be able to get treated promptly. The, especially when we talk about uh, giving drugs that work as antivirals, we want to get them on board ASAP. Do people have access to that kind of care? Do they know where to go? Do they feel safe in going there? And those are critical factors as well as we go through this pandemic. Let's look at vaccination rates. So vaccination rates, we know that the, um, the distribution of vaccinations when they were first introduced was not equitable. It wasn't um, available to a lot of poor and marginalized communities. And so we saw rates that you know, shot up among um, you know, white and Asian populations, whereas uh, black and Hispanic populations lagged behind. That gradually changed, and I will say that one thing that's been kind of remarkable for me, seeing a large number of folks who are undocumented have no health care or no health insurance rather whatsoever, cost is always an issue. And it's interesting to see treatments that are free essentially and vaccines which are free, very expensive, but free to patients. Um, and so gradually we see you know the rates increase over time, and I've got some heartening data to share in a second regarding. Uh, some of the latest data on vaccination rates in uh, Black and Hispanic communities in, in, in general, but you can see rates are not nearly where they want them to be. And, and as a personal anecdote in, in Santana, California, um, I do not have a practice that has uh, a strong history of vaccine hesitancy, um, so I, I've been very happy about that, frankly, as I'm a proponent of vaccines in general. Um, but boy, this has been a different ballgame for the past uh, year, year and a half since, since there's been talk of introducing the vaccines. Um, it's really been different from any other um, condition I've ever experienced. And if you've had that same experience, I'd love to hear about it. If you want to put your question or, or a comment in the chat, we'll try to get to them at the end. Um, the heartening news I had to share was that particularly among um, Black and Hispanic uh, communities, uh, we are seeing higher rates of vaccination now. So the gray bars represent the total population estimate in the United States who's eligible for vaccines. And you can see that the um, this is fully vaccinated, so considered uh, either uh, two doses of an mRNA uh, vaccine or one dose of an adenovirus-based uh, vaccine. And you can see that rates are have increased to closer to where the total population is in Black and Hispanic populations. And you also see a uh, increase in recent vaccinations. So more folks have been coming in over the past several months uh, to get their vaccine. And I think that's just due to a consistent drumbeat of, uh, of let's get vaccinated. This is the best thing you can do for yourself. And I think it's been also a return to healthcare. One of the difficulties at the initiation of this crisis was that people weren't coming in and they weren't talking to the most trusted individuals uh, in their lives who, uh, who can advise them about these sensitive issues such as vaccination, and that is their primary care provider. Um, since more people have been coming in and since there's been so much, we have billions and billions of vaccines um, uh, delivered worldwide, there's been less concern about these potential uh, side effects and, and um, that are very rare and or uh, factitious. Um, we're seeing more and more increases in, in rates, particularly among folks who have a history justifiably of, um, of not necessarily trusting the healthcare system as a whole. But having that one-to-one -one conversation, um, I've been really able to move some of my patients over the past two months uh, to getting their vaccination. I'm also seeing kind of a, a there's definitely a vaccine fatigue. Uh, so uh, Dr. Sapo mentioned there's general fatigue about uh, COVID-19. I certainly see that in the vaccine space as well, where people just don't want to get their boosters. I'm getting them more on board now. And so it's, it's less there's 
there's less hardcore resistance in my practice, which is 90% Latino, um, and more just maybe an ambivalence and I'm moving people over as they're coming back in because of their shoulder pain, because of their diabetes. And that's been a good thing. That said, I always have to caution myself and you know our learners here at UC Irvine that we don't determine the majority of a person's health and well-being. In fact, we affect about 10% of it in our healthcare system. That's critical. It's a, it's a big deal to have 10%. But most of most of individuals' health is determined uh, by factors which are actually uh, intrinsic, such as genetics, but also look at their behavioral patterns. So this is how much they're working, how much they're sleeping, um, what they're putting into their bodies, food, drink, etc. Um, those are really the critical factors, and that's where health happens. When we're taking care of patients, we try to do so in a holistic manner, which accounts for all of these variables, understanding that, you know, in, in my practice, I feel like I can't control all of these variables, uh, you know, certainly genetics, but also a lot of the social determinants. And I do have a slide, I think, that illustrates, you know, what those social determinants of health are. And so I'll just call out a few. I'm not going to go through this in, you know, in detail. In terms of economic stability, I'll just mention with the COVID crisis, we, we know that there's been huge economic-based inequalities in the way people are cared for for decades. Um, one really difficult thing with uh, COVID is it came with this recession. Um, and we know there's been a lot of mental health issues, a lot of substance use has increased during COVID-19. Uh, and that's, if you look at studies, particularly among adolescents, a lot of that wasn't due to worries about getting COVID-19 or health, health effects. They're worried about their family's finances. So really think about that if you're providing care to particularly to older kids and adolescents. Um, there's been a lot of concern and a lot more anxiety, depression, substance use in that population. A physical environment was really important during social distancing. We have one exercise corridor in Santana, and it was packed for walking and uh, people taking some pleasure out of their lives in an urban environment. And so, but, you know, it was not safe because there were so many people. Nobody could social distance appropriately. And particularly pre-vaccination, that was just an untenable situation. So what happens? More people stay inside. They get more stress. They get more depression. And they get more obesity. Their chronic illnesses get more out of control, which predisposes them to worse outcomes in COVID. Education is very important. It's, it's nice to have some outreach programs like we have at UCI to, uh, to try to address that. And I think that we'll be... I think mucking through what happened with our educational system over the past couple of years. And I think a lot of kids got left behind, particularly kids of color um, as schools closed. Um, and that's gonna have some long-term ramifications. Our food banks were, were greatly affected here. We, uh, we, we never have seen such shortages in our food banks, even though we are trying to increase um, productivity and uh, donations to those food banks. Um, and then I will say that one thing that really stands out is that over the past decade, social support has been shown to really be a factor. And that was critical, particularly for my older patients, uh, so difficult to isolate because they really were isolated without that senior center, without their church, without the, those social networks. Uh, they really have been suffering. And so that's why the reopening has been very important for them, I think, for their overall well-being. And then finally, healthcare system. So what can you do about all those factors, the first five I just mentioned? be an advocate, be an ally, uh, do your best, act in policy. But one thing you certainly can control is the way you provide health care and you provide it equitably for the person in front of you and try to give them uh, what they need. And with that said, inevitably, some patients do get sick with COVID-19, and much to my chagrin, um, and Dr. Sapo is luckily there to take care of them. She's going to guide you through outpatient treatments now. So one thing that's just very important, I think, for us to repeat here is even though we're talking about race and ethnicity, race and ethnicity are really being used as a proxy for the deeper problem, which is racism. And so when we talk about these racial and ethnic groups having worse outcomes from COVID, what some people hear is that if you're Black or you're Hispanic, you're just going to do worse because of your biology or because you have a predisposition to you know, your group having more obesity or diabetes. And it's very, very important that the takeaway from this conversation is not that it's somehow inherent to the group, that rather it's the structural inequities that have been set up in this country where, as Dr. Vega mentioned, during the surge, during all of the surges, who are the, who are the service workers? How are people social distancing in houses if they have multiple families living in the, in the home? Um, how are people accessing healthcare if they're uninsured or underinsured? Those are the factors that are determining who gets sick from COVID. Um, and so it's just, it's really key that the kind of use of race and ethnicity as a proxy for racism doesn't get conflated with an understanding that there's something biologically predisposed in groups 
to allow them to then lead to, to getting COVID. And that's a point that we'll make many times over. And so when we talk about what happens once you have COVID and the options and the treatments that are available, there are four treatment options that are now um, able to be used. And it's worth spending time on some of the data that support each of these. And so the NIH now recommends um, uh, kind of in this order that if you are non-hospitalized, but you have mild to moderate COVID-19 and you're at risk for progression to more severe disease, um, there are many, many options that are available. And this is something that I think is really meant to be celebrated. And so one of them is nematrelvir with ritonavir, which um, goes by the trade name of Paxlovid, um, is what you might have heard, which is administered twice daily for five days to be started as soon as possible and within at least five days of symptoms for those who are age 12 and up and weigh at least 40 kilograms. Citrovimab is the last monoclonal antibody that we still have available to us. It's active against Omicron. That should be available, that should be administered as soon as possible. And it says here within 10 days, that's what the guidelines still say, but newer research has shown that it really should be within seven days of symptom onset, onset for those who are 12 and up. Remdesivir for outpatient is something that's actually pretty new and it's given as an IV. Um, and it's given on days one, two, and three. And you're supposed to start it as soon as you're able to catch the symptoms for the best kind of, um, of, of impact. And the reason why remdesivir being on this list is a little bit different is because most of us are used to seeing remdesivir given in the inpatient settings for those who are hospitalized with COVID. And then lastly, monopiravir um, is given twice daily for five days. And that started as soon as possible once you know the person has symptoms. And certainly within five days of symptoms, um, for those who are 18 and up. Um, and that's really the last option if no other options are available, in part because it isn't as efficacious, and also because it does have um, some, at least for pregnant women, some teratogenic effects, et cetera. So it's important to kind of note this list that in the toolkit for what we have available for outpatient settings, in each of these, you, you've noticed that we've written ASAP. So the timing really matters. And timing in order to kind of get these medications to patients is dependent on two factors. One of them being, are you diagnosed with, with SARS-CoV-2? Have you taken a test and you know you have it? And secondly, can you get to a healthcare provider who can help you get this? And for the, for the medications, for the you know, oral tablets in this, it's getting to a pharmacy and taking them. For the IV medications, it's getting to an actual healthcare center. So when we talk about inequities, we have to again think who's able to test and test easily and who's able to get to healthcare First of all, who has primary care doctors that they have access to and who's able to get to healthcare facilities. And so things um, around inequities in rural versus urban medicine come in, et cetera, et cetera. And so you can see even in here why we may have some challenges with certain groups not getting access to these treatments. So let's go through the data on this. And so the data for um, Paxlovid and Matrovir Ritonavir, which got its EUA approval in December 2021. And I remember all of us were super excited about this because the numbers were so robust. Um, in the EPIC-HR trial of about 22,000 adults, um, they found that those who were able to get the medication within three days were hospitalized at 0.7% versus 6.5% of those who did not get the medicine. And if they got it within five days, it was still about the same numbers, 0.8 versus 6.3. So that's 89% uh, risk reduction or 88% risk reduction. That's huge, about 90% risk reduction for hospitalization or death if you're able to get Paxlovid as soon as possible. And for those who um, were 65 and up, the numbers were even more kind of convincing, which is that those who got um, nematrovir and ritonavir uh, who were 65 and up had a 1.1% versus 16.3 in those who didn't get it. Um, and that's 94% risk reduction. So when you look at these numbers, um, I think the thing that's really kind of impressed upon you know, you, all of us is that this works. And again, it's an oral medication. Oral medications are amazing because the ability to access them is really increased for most populations. The main setback of these medications is that um, there are significant drug-drug interactions because of the, the ritonavir, because of um, its inhibition of the CYP3A, cytochrome um, P3A um, in the liver. And, and that matters for those who are on multiple medications. And now who will be on multiple medications? Those are chronic illnesses. Those are chronic illnesses tend to be at higher risk of getting severe COVID. So you do have to check to make sure that you can administer it um, for, for the time period that it will be needed for. Again, it's only about, you know, the, the, the five days that it's needed for. And so there is a benefit and there's a, you know, there's a real kind of ability to get um, individuals as medicine within the time um, and then get them back on their normal medications. This is approved for 12 and up. 
And um, again, the key here is to get it into the individuals as soon as possible. Citrovimab is our remaining monoclonal antibody. We had many in our toolkit um, before Omicron, but unfortunately, um, Omicron showed that most of the, the ones that we had don't work. Um, and this was approved in May 2021, um, a trial that looked at 583 high-risk patients, uh, patients with obesity, about 63% uh, were Hispanic, 7% were Black and noted that this monoclonal antibody worked by blocking viral entry and clearing infected cells of SARS-CoV-2. And um, the, the study was ended kind of early because it was clear that, there were, there were, that it was efficacious. And this is administered as, um, as uh, an IV, although IM is also available. What is interesting here is that you end up with about an 85% risk reduction for hospitalization or death if this is administered. Initially, it was anywhere up to 10 days. It has now been shown that it is actually it's most effective within the seven days. So again, the time pressure on this is really a little bit um, more more present for us. Um, there are early data that show that the activity against the Omicron B2 uh, subvariant is not as robust as the B1. And so uh, this really goes to show the ways in which we continue to learn and these therapeutics continue to be kind of in flux um, as we use them against the ever changing coronavirus. So um, it's that we wanted to kind of show this slide because we wanted to remind individuals of, of who gets monoclonal antibodies and, and who it is that we're really talking about. It's individuals who are high risk for complications 12 and up. Again, used to be 10 days and now it's seven days. And when you're giving this medication, it has to be in a healthcare setting because there is a possibility for, for allergic or adverse events. And so you wanna watch them for an hour afterwards. Um, and you want to be able to treat some of these severe, severe reactions. And so what, what this kind of gets at, these last two lines get at, and we certainly see this in our healthcare facilities, that you have to have a good healthcare infrastructure set up. And so again, not all places are going to have access to this, or people will have to drive out far to get to the centers where they can get access to this. And as the timing on this gets you know, shorter from 10 days to seven days, you have to think about who may be able to access it versus not. And then a couple more, oh, actually, um, the, sorry, just to kind of be more specific about the criteria for monoclonal antibodies um, and, and what we mean when we say um, mild to moderate COVID-19, we're talking about individuals that you saw in that first uh, slide that I showed you on the left-hand side, those with diabetes, obesity, chronic illness. The nice thing about this list is that it does allow you to use your clinical judgment that if you think your patient has something that sets them up for increased risk, you can usually push to be able to get this. We will tell you that the supply for, for uh, citrovimab is fairly low. Um, or has historically been during the, the, the Omicron surge, um, and it's kind of catching up now. And so you want to check with your health centers to understand what's available. And then we'll talk about monopiravir, which um, was uh, approved in December 2020. And there were, was a lot of excitement when the move out randomized control trial data came out initi initially because um, the, the data looked like there was actually a higher risk reduction than ended up being the case. But what, we're, what we know now is kind of what the data panned out to show which is that um, looking at about 1,400 adults, um, median age was 43, a high risk population by their obesity status, um, who received a course of monopiravir over five days from symptom onset, there was about a 30% risk reduction in hospitalization and death. And this was because um, through the mechanism of reducing the viral load, which is thought to be the thing that's able to help folks to heal faster. There is some concern for, for fetal harm during pregnancy, and so this wouldn't be used in that group. And because it's, it, it isn't kind of as robust as some of the other options, um, this is really kind of considered your last line treatment if you have nothing else available. It is an oral medication, so there's benefit there. Um, but as an antiviral, it isn't kind of as robust as the, the nematrovir with ritonavir. And then just a word on remdesivir. And so the pine tree randomized, randomized control trial looked about 500 individuals um, with at least one risk factor for severe disease. And they looked at them within seven days. The mean age was 50 um, and 41% were Hispanic, 61% were diabetic, 55% were obese. And they were given this course of um, remdesivir by IV over three days. And they actually stopped it early in part because this, this study was being done at the time where we're looking at other outpatient therapeutics, which are actually easier to give and more robust. Um, but they did find, uh, these early data did show that um, individuals who were given remdesivir over this three-day course 
um, had an 87, 87% risk reduction in hospitalization and death and ended up needing medical follow-up medical visits about 81% less. And so um, there was definitely something that kind of came from this in terms of benefit. It is worth knowing as we talk about what we know so far from COVID, again, we're in year three of this, of this, and we talk about inequities, we have data that tell us how things have gone already. We had a class of monoclonal antibodies or many classes of monoclonal antibodies that were used prior. And so this study um, by Wilts et al. looked at 41 health centers from November to August, November 2020 to August of 2021, and about 805 um, to 500,000 patients. And their question was, by race and ethnicity, who is getting monoclonal antibodies? And these data are really interesting. One, because it covers a really high portion of the population over a long period of time um, across the entire U.S. And it's worth spending a couple of minutes, or, or we don't have a ton of time, so I'll spend just a few seconds with this. But it is worth taking a look. Um, on the left-hand box, the solid black line is white patients. Um, and if you look kind of clustered below are black, um, Asian, and other um, by race. And one of the challenges here is that we don't always properly um, disaggregate race. And so a lot of times we'll say people of color, and that doesn't actually tell us like what, what's happening to Native, you know, Native Americans, what's happening to Black Americans, what's happening to Asians. And so this other category is a little funny in here. But white patients of all the individuals who had um, COVID who were white, 4% of them were able to get monoclonal antibodies in this period. Of all the individuals who were Black who had COVID, um, only about 2.8% of them were able to get monoclonal antibodies. For Asians, it was 2.2. And for others, again, that group race, it was 2.2. So the 4% versus 2.8%, again, they're all low percentages, but it's, it's you know at least a percentage point, sometimes double the percentage points. And when you break it down by ethnicity, Hispanic versus non-Hispanic, you can see that that number is even more significant, that Hispanic patients received monoclonal antibodies about 58% less than non-Hispanic patients. And that number, I remember when these data came out, it made the news because people were like, this is significant, what is going on? Again, what we want to leave you with is that it's, it isn't race that's driving this. There isn't something inherent about you know, people who are of a Hispanic ethnicity, um, you know, somehow they just magically, magically don't get monoclonal antibodies. It is racism and the structural inequities, unfortunately, that are built into our healthcare system. And these data really kind of speak to that very, very robustly. Another study looking at Medicare beneficiaries from November 2020 to um, August 2021, um, just took a look at um, outpatients, um, folks who were in the outpatient setting and the ED setting, and they found that uh, if you had a, if you had more, so the, your, your chance of getting monoclonal antibodies was higher among those with fewer conditions. And that is like really the takeaway because we talked about how these are supposed to go to those who are most at risk and those who are most at risk match a certain groups. Um, and yet what we saw in this is that individuals who actually had less uh, conditions were able to get them. And it speaks to the, what is bolded here, which is it's possible that the reasons for this might be because individuals um, weren't able to navigate for themselves quite as well. We left this as the kind of final slide for you to take a look at, at least in this outpatient section, that a lot of the therapeutics we're talking about are very difficult to find. And so there's different tools that we have available to us that will hopefully allow you to be able to um, advocate for your patients. That if they come to your health system and they can't find um, you know, access to being able to get the medications they need, that hopefully you can help them say, go to this other health center and you'll be able to access it. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Vega. All right. Thanks very much, Dr. Sappho. I really appreciate your comments regarding the, the non-biologic basis of worst disease for COVID-19 among American Indians, Alaska Natives, Black individuals, uh, Hispanic, Latino. Um, and it does have to do with those social determinants of health, those chronic iniquities that produce uh, more crowded conditions, more poverty, less access to care, and um, and therefore, all those things is what result, uh, result in a uh, in worse outcomes, higher rates of illness, and and worse outcomes associated uh, with COVID-19. There's not a genetic or immunologic uh, predisposition per se, um, and and so unfortunately, uh, I, I have had to really try to be a strong advocate, and I felt like uh, with monoclonal antibodies, especially when before oral treatments were available. I was able to get those on board for a good number of my patients, but it was through a ton of effort. It wasn't just um, working with the patients and their families because get arranging a ride and getting, you know, knowing what the treatment even was because many individuals weren't aware of it. 
Um, it was working within the healthcare system because it took a strong amount of coordination for an infusion center to get the patients an appointment in a crowded space where, um, mind you, especially during Omicron, we have a ton of difficulty with our own staff because everybody is out sick. Um, so it's, it, it, but it was worth it. And I feel, really feel like I'm sure a lot of our viewers too, um, really were able to intervene and, and probably save a few lives at least, um, through getting those monoclonal antibodies on board. Now, um, you know, with the oral treatments available, uh, particularly Paxlovid, I think we've got a, um, you know, good chance with this if, if, and when, and I think when there is a, another surge, however strong it is. Uh, we've got some new therapeutics available. I am going to talk about inpatient treatments, uh, but I'm going to keep it fairly straightforward and brief for NIH. You can read uh, the different recommendations, and it, it changes based on the severity of presentation of patients. So patients who are admitted, uh, most patients who are admitted do have hypoxia, and so therefore go right to step two requiring supplemental oxygen, receiving both remdesivir and dexamethasone. These are very established agents now that, um, that have good trial data behind them, uh, have been shown to make a, uh, a difference in mortality. For patients who are admitted, maybe it's an older patient who's admitted with COVID-19, they have multiple chronic illness, they're confused, maybe they have some fever, uh, need some supportive care, they might get remdesivir, but if there are you know, no lung conditions, maybe they just get remdesivir only and not dexamethasone. It seems like most folks going in the hospital get both remdesivir and uh, dex. Once they start to get to that higher acuity though, then you really, you know, the, uh, the application of those antivirals isn't quite as critical, but dexamethasone, those immunomodulators, if you think back to that uh, slide, looking at the normal disease course of COVID-19, that's where your immunomodulators become more important. So that's where you're gonna uh, uh, you know, in, uh, induce treatment with dexamethasone. Uh, you'll also be thinking about using some other uh, immunomodulatory agents, maybe baricitinib or Um, Those can be effective in addition to dexamethasone for those inpatients. And then for folks who are uh, the most severe requiring mechanical ventilation or ECMO, uh, dexamethasone is really the only thing that's been uh, shown to uh, dramatically improve uh, their outcomes. Um, adding tocilizumab to it is a good idea as well. So there's, that's the algorithm. In terms of remdesivir, it does have good data for the ACT-1 trial, a randomized trial with over 1,000 patients hospitalized for uh, COVID-19. And if you, it did have a significant uh, improvement in terms of the overall risk of death, but there was a difference in terms of subgroup analysis as to who benefited most. Who benefited most was uh, folks who were receiving oxygen, but not to the point where they needed um, you know, mechanical ventilation or ECMO. By that time, um, unfortunately, remdesivir wasn't as effective. It's acting as an antiviral, so you want to give it still earlier before those patients get really, truly sick. So maybe they're hospitalized, but they, uh, but they require oxygen, not to the level where they require a large amount of oxygen through mass. They, uh, or they're mechanically ventilated. That's where remdesivir is going to have its uh, greatest effect. And this data has been widely known, and remdesivir is a, has been FDA approved for some time now. Um, yet, uh, yet we don't always see the same application of uh, of treatment, even within hospitals. I would imagine that those disparities in treatment are lessened because when patients admitted to the hospital, you know, there are standardized algorithms as endorsed by the NIH, which I just showed you. So patients should receive more equal treatment. But this study by Ash and colleagues, which was referenced in one of your pretest questions, uh, followed Medicare beneficiaries admitted for uh, COVID-19. If you look at the bars, it's not um, surprising, uh, it's sad, but not surprising that uh, black individuals had a higher risk of mortality overall versus white individuals. Usually after adjustment for things like the demographic variables, the economic status, health insurance status, and especially for chronic illnesses, those two uh, lines should more equilibrate because we know that black individuals have more comorbidities generally uh, upon admission versus white individuals. In this study though, it was the opposite. The gap actually widened. And uh, what the conclusion of the study was that there was um, strong variability uh, in the care provided in these hospitals. And generally black patients were not receiving the same kinds of treatment. And it has to do with the type of hospital. Were they sticking to these algorithms? Were they giving remdesivir early? Were they uh, starting dexamethasone for folks who required oxygen uh, support? And there was not. If, the, if all those hospitals started following the algorithms uh, correctly and equitably, um, then uh, that gap between white and black survival uh, would be uh, markedly different. The bottom line is that we have to think about uh, data like this, as well as some of the data that Dr. Safo showed, and make sure we are providing equitable care. And, and I think that guidelines and algorithms, when they're 
when people have the chance to uh, have a diverse sample of opinions of voices, informing those, um, those algorithms are a good way, a fundamental way to reduce health disparities like we see in the study by Ash and colleagues. And this is a, another study looking at uh, differences in standards of care uh, that remdesivir, dexamethasone, fundamental drugs uh, for, for inpatients are not applied necessarily equitably um, and that there's too much variability of use. Uh, this has something to do, you could maybe argue with about supply, but, but, uh, but there's no reason necessarily that, uh, that white patients would necessarily have greater access if it wasn't for some of those systemic factors and where the hospital's located, how it's funded, some of those systemic uh, racism factors in our healthcare system, baked into our healthcare system that Dr. Sappho mentioned earlier. So this is something where you really want to be mindful when you are seeing Black and Hispanic patients, Alaska, uh, Alaska Native American Indian patients, that you are providing equitable care. I think it's worth taking a little time out because if not, these are the kinds of outcomes uh, that we see. Um, you know, with the higher rates of hospitalization, ICU admission, and death, particularly in this study looking, this is COVIDnet, which is one of the largest ongoing um, repositories of research for COVID-19, um, particularly among the American Indian Alaska Native uh, population, we can see just how devastating COVID-19 um, has been. Um, and so we all can uh, make a difference by the care we provide every day by, by promoting that, uh, that great algorithm that Dr. Sappho uh, discussed of working on prevention and then risk mitigation. And then if a patient gets sick, prompt treatment uh, and evaluation. So, um, so I think that that is the way to go. And with that, hopefully we are ready for our post-test. Fantastic. Well, um, to honor everybody's time, we do have room for a couple of Q&A questions. As a reminder to submit a question, um, please click the Q&A button to the left of your console. Uh, we will try to get to as many as time allows. Um, so the first question here is, what is the percentage of Americans that have been fully vaccinated as of today? So this is, a, is an interesting question because it matters a little bit less the full um, vaccination rates for the country and it matters a lot the vaccination rates in your community. So overall about 60%, 60 to 70% of Americans have been vaccinated. And remember the slide that I believe Dr. Vega showed you with those numbers being very different by racial and ethnic groups. And those numbers are actually also very different by geographic location. And the reason why this matters is that if we have another surge, let's say, you know, Omicron 2.0, um, you want to know what your community's vaccination rates are, because if it's as low as it is in some communities, like 30%, and your transmission rates are super high, you know that your community is going to have more people get sick and end up in the hospital, which will impact the healthcare infrastructure. And so while this is a really great question to ask, because it shows kind of how well we've done as a nation to get folks um, vaccinated, the real question you want to know is looking at your kind of local area and regional area is how many people are vaccinated in your community, almost down to your zip code, if you can get it. Dr. Vega, would you add anything to that? No, I think that's a great point. Uh, you want to stay as local as possible. And um, I saw there's some questions about uh, vaccine hesitancy or resistance and uh, tips you can use. I, I think just be understanding, empathic, persistent, personalize it. Don't talk about the CDC. Don't talk about mm -hmm. um, you know national guidelines or, or you know what industry is doing. Um, talk about yourself. I talk about my family. I'm comfortable doing that. Um, I have my kids. They're all vaccinated. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I have seen a shift. I also think it's for those really hardcore folks who are just, you know, are not going to be convinced. And, you know, clearly, I only, I only have a couple, less than a handful of patients who really, you know, come at me and, and get, get a little bit aggressive about their uh, anti-vaccine status. I, we don't discuss that anymore. We're gonna we're gonna focus on the headache, shoulder pain, hypertension, etc. Um, so I you know that's because I only have so much time, and all of us do in primary care or well, practice. So I think those are some tips that that have worked for me, and I have seen the shift over time. That ambivalence is is something you can work with. The resistance, the hardcore no, that's something that's harder to work. Great, thank you so much for that insight. And um, uh, we can we can cap off the Q and A with this, and then um, uh, we can conclude. But uh, can faculty share barriers that they've overcome to any degree, uh, specifically with COVID nineteen, and how did you do that? Uh, Sappho, maybe you want to share some anecdotes that help you maybe to get to either vaccines or treatment on board for patients. 
I think this question is kind of getting at this idea of um, how we've experienced this pandemic as individuals providing care. And I, it's a great question. I think the biggest barrier that um, we have had as providers is um, probably to a degree of, of burnout and exhaustion from every couple of months or something different that you're trying to navigate your patients through. Um, and I will just say that it's okay to feel the frustrations. It's okay to feel the frustrations that, you know, our, our larger uh, federal and local public health bodies that sometimes don't feel in sync with what we're seeing with our patients. Um, but it's really important. And I would say probably the thing that has helped me overcome some of this feeling of will we ever get out of this, you know, how can we keep our patients safe is the understanding that uh, for many patients, knowing that you're their clinician and that you're there with them and that you'll walk with them and answer their questions, whatever they may be, often will bring them around. So I've had folks who started off a deep no to vaccines who, you know, we mentioned it every time they came in, we just kind of let them, it's like any kind of, anything with motivational interviewing, you'll have the patient who doesn't stop smoking for years and then one day you're able to counsel them and they're like, actually doc, I am ready now. Um, I think that ability to kind of take care of yourself so you can take care of your patients has been one that's been really emphasized to me because this journey on COVID is a long one and we are all tired and, and, it, and it's okay to have experienced, I think, the different levels of, of frustration um, that many of us have definitely struggled with. Well, thank you again to both of you for all those really invaluable insights. Really do appreciate it. For our audience, if you would like to claim credit, please click that claim credit button. It will appear when the webcast ends. Uh, be on the lookout for our 30-day survey. You'll get that in your email. As always, your responses will help us develop further education. Um, to our podcast listeners, please rate and review. It only takes a few seconds and helps us grow our channel. Uh, and for those of us joining us on YouTube, please be sure to take the post test into the description to claim CME credit. And don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel uh, to never miss our future videos. So thank you. And we'll see you again soon. Dr. Vega and Dr. Safo, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Stay well.